Well, Megan and I are grateful for this church. Uh, being able to join your Lord's Day gathering the past number of months has been exactly what we've needed. See your evident love for one another uh, and your commitment to Christ. It's just been a great encouragement to us. Uh, and it's a joy for me to be able to open God's Word with you this morning. I want to look at a psalm, Psalm 67. So if you want to open your copy of God's Word or grab the Pew Bible and begin turning there. Uh, I've got three reasons for wanting to study Psalm 67 with you. Uh, the first is that this text is so personally dear to me. Uh, I love talking about it. I love preaching it. Uh, I remember where I was the first time I read Psalm 67 as a new believer. Uh, what struck me about it was uh, it was just the kind of life that I wanted to live as a new Christian. It was the kind of life that I saw some people around me living uh, I knew it was a, a missionary psalm, or, or that's what it's often been called. I didn't want to be a missionary at that point. Uh, it just kind of gave a, a vision for the Christian life to me. I feel like to open a text like this one is to lift our eyes from the kind of autopilot that we can be on sometimes, you know, where we're, uh, we're going to work, we're going to school, uh, we're coming home, we're eating, we're sleeping. Wake up, repeat. We do the same things over and over again. Time passes, we try to keep our head above water. But no, wait a minute. Jesus came that you and I might have life and might have it more abundantly. I feel like to open Psalm 67 is to be reminded that we're supposed to be living the eternal kind of life infused with the grace of God. Amidst all the mundane things of going to work and raising families and navigating relationships and growing older, the king of the universe has called us to follow him. So Psalm 67, this missionary psalm, helps us. It, it reminds us that we are ambassadors to a lost and dying world. But there's, there's a second reason uh, I want to look at this psalm. And that's that I think we're swimming in the waters of the prosperity gospel. Uh, we certainly deal with it in Asia, many of the large churches in Hong Kong and in Singapore that many people in my congregation have come from, uh, have heard this teaching that Jesus is the key to unlocking the storehouse of heaven. And, and if we can just figure out how through faith to pull down the blessings of heaven, that we can have the greatest life that we can imagine. Now, that teaching is difficult to undo if someone's heard it a lot. I mean, after all, who doesn't want to be blessed? I'll confess that the first number of years I spent criticizing the prosperity gospel, I hadn't really taken time to figure out why it's so attractive, why people are so drawn to it. Uh, it it's easy to criticize in a sense. It's simply taking the blessings of heaven that we're looking forward to and trying to pull it into this life. But what's the attraction of it or why is it so confusing? Well, two years ago, I went into the doctor's office for a visit and he looked at me and said, you have cancer. And I told him immediately that there was a mistake of some kind. Uh, there was a misunderstanding. My, my wife had just told me to come in and, and get a checkup. Uh, he assured me that his credentials were better than mine in the medical field. 
Uh, you know the most frequent response that I got at my church the next Sunday and the Sundays going forward? A number of people said this to me. Mark, we are sure you're going to be fine because you're serving God. It was as if the, the, the cure for cancer has been discovered and it's full-time vocational Christian ministry. I knew that that wasn't right. I knew that wasn't right. But I felt the attraction of what they were saying. I mean, if there was a way that we could serve God and be sure that we were going to be healthy and happy, I felt the pull of that in a new way. I mean, I found myself saying, God, you aren't going to let this happen to me. Not now, are you? And as if in response, my life got worse. About a month later, I had a falling out with my oldest friend in China. I'd known this man for more than 15 years. He'd been pastoring a church. Uh, I had led him to Christ in college. Uh, after he graduated, he started a church. He pastored that church. Uh, and he left his wife and his son. Uh, and due to some things that, uh, some relations we had had earlier, he was able to steal a, a sizable chunk of money from me on the way. And uh, it was a betrayal that cut all the way to my heart. And I found myself again asking, why is this happening to his family, to his church, and to me? And then about a month before we came on furlough last summer, I was preaching at our church. Uh, we were at the point of celebrating three years together. We had just uh, voted into membership our 100th member. Things were going well. Uh, we were encouraged. And 15 police officers uh, joined our meeting from the back. They took up positions. And I realized, or at least I, I thought at that time, that that would be the last time this church would gather all together again. We lost our meeting location. I thought I wasn't going to be able to get back into the country. Our church was scattered. I can tell you from the vantage point of more than a year later that much good has come from that morning. But again, I found myself asking the question, why, Lord? Why would you let this happen amidst so much good? Why, after so much gathering, would you let all this be scattered? I realized at that point that the problem with the prosperity of gospel is not out there. It's in here, isn't it? It's in your heart and in my heart. It's the most natural thing in the world for a Christian to want to be blessed by God. We know he's in control. We know he's our father. We know he has a plan. We know that that plan is above and beyond us, but just on a personal level, you and I struggle oftentimes to understand what kind of help we can expect from God. Will he bless me? Is it okay to want that? With my cancer, with my lost friend, with my scattered church. Well, I believe Psalm 67 helps us here. It helps you and I ask an important question. Why? Do I want to be blessed? Why do I want to be blessed? As it does, it helps connect the mission of God with my desire to be blessed by God. Not with the empty promises of the life that you've always dreamed, but with a vision of Christian faithfulness. The third reason I want to open this psalm is because of COVID-19. Uh, this is a, a confusing time. 
an uncertain time, a fearful time. But if we take our, our, the scriptures as our marching orders, then this is the time for the people of God to shine like stars in the universe as we hold out the word of life. What do they say is the best defense? It's a good offense, right? I believe that this psalm can help shake us out of lethargy into ministry. So for all those reasons, I want to open the psalm. Here we go. I've got a main point that you can write down. Uh, The point of this missionary psalm is that God always blesses his people to be a blessing to others, to the ends of the earth. God always blesses his people to be a blessing to others, to the ends of the earth. I'll read the psalm. I encourage you to be following along as I do. Psalm 67, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm, a psalm. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God, Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. I want to think about three points. A perspective for missions a prayer for missions, and a power for missions. A perspective, a prayer, and a power for missions. So first, a perspective for missions. God blesses his people to be a blessing to others. Looking at verses 1 and 2, this is a prayer that's being prayed. Let's look there at verse 1. The psalmist prays, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. I want you to notice three things about the way he approaches God here. First, be gracious to us. This is a humble request. A humble request. To ask God to be gracious is to realize that he doesn't have to help us. We aren't deserving of his help. I think there's a pride with the way we sometimes interact with God. You know, we wait until some desperate hour and then we angrily cry out, God, why? Why did you allow this? And when we do that sort of thing, what we're thinking is that we deserve better. The prayer here knows his place as the creature, not the creator, and as a sinner who is in need of grace. It's as if he's saying, God, I don't deserve this, but would you please be gracious to me? Would you give what I don't deserve? I think our lack of humility shows up most frequently when we don't bother to pray at all. Think about something that's going on in your life right now about which you're anxious. Something that kind of dominates the the scene of your thoughts this morning, this week. It could be your work, could be a relationship, could be some health issue. It's, It's something that you think about often. Now I want you to stop and think about the frequency and the intensity of your prayer around that thing. 
The reason that we so often don't pray is that we think that our time and energy is better spent on our own efforts, our own toil, maybe even our own fretting. When we pray, we're choosing a different route. Maybe you could resolve just this week to take that thing that's on your mind, on your heart, and to pray intensely about it. To humble yourself before God and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. May God be gracious to us. But the second thing about this prayer is that it's a direct request. He says, bless us. Now, bless is one of those words that is so familiar to us. We use it so often. It can kind of lose its clarity and power. But it's a clear and direct word that means, God, give me the power for success in what I'm undertaking. Make me a success here. When the student prays it over her studies, she's asking for clarity of mind to learn the material. When you pray it on your way into the office, you're, you're praying for the work of your hands to prosper. When the father prays it over his family, he's praying for health and protection and relational peace between family members. When a pastor prays it over his church, he's praying for spiritual growth. Bless us. Make us fruitful. Establish the work of our hands. It's a direct request. But then third, it's a relational request. He says, make his face shine upon us. A shining face is the picture of friendship and love. I found that my kids are often sensitive to my face. Uh, Sometimes I'm not angry, but my face doesn't look right or something, and they... Uh, It makes them upset. Or or sometimes I am angry, but I manage enough self-control to kind of control my face. And and they say, Dad, your face still doesn't look right. Well, this is the opposite of that. This is a face that even before you hear any word, it conveys peace and joy and affection. It's the face of a friend you haven't seen in a long time embracing you. It's the face of a groom looking at his bride down the aisle. It's the face of a parent watching a child achieve some new milestone. That's that's why the Bible, especially the Psalms, regularly talks about beholding God's face as a measure of relational closeness. So Psalm 4, 6, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. But there's also a reality that sometimes for the believer, God's face can seem hidden from us. So David in Psalm 13, 1 says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? In times of struggle, God can seem far from us. David here feels forgotten and as if God is elusive and hiding from him. Well, back to our passage, a prayer for God's face to shine is not a prayer for God to love us more, but for us to experience his love more. God, let me see your shining face and be encouraged. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, it's been a long time since your heart felt connected to God, since you felt close to God, where there was relational joy that you were feeling in God. Make this your prayer. God, make your face to shine upon me. So it's a humble prayer. It's a direct prayer. It's a relational prayer. But there's one more thing I want us to notice about verse 1. This isn't merely an individual prayer, is it? All of the pronouns are plural. I mean, it's a prayer you might pray in your your private place of prayer, your prayer closet. I think you should, but 
but all of the us's here show that the, the psalmist is not merely concerned about himself, but with the whole covenant community. I've been working with churches in China, and, and I've found that they can be more committed to praying together as a church than many churches in the West. Oftentimes they'll have a morning service like this one, and then they'll go to lunch together and come back for a prayer service, and nearly everyone is there. In some ways it's a complete disaster because you have kids taking naps all over the place as the prayer meeting is, or not taking naps as the prayer meeting's going on. But I think you can tell a lot about a church by who shows up at the corporate prayer meeting. How committed is the church to praying together with one another? Paul tells us in Colossians to devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. It's worth asking ourselves how committed we are to praying together and for the community as a whole, not just for our individual lives. So God blesses his people. That's the message of verse 1. But question, why does he do that? Or why does the psalmist think that he should do that? Look at verse 2 with me. That your way may be known on earth your saving power among all nations. The that here is a so that. It points to purpose or motivation. And the psalmist hopes for two outcomes. Can you see them there? First, God's way to be known. God's way is a metaphor for his truth. You can see that in Psalm 25, where he says, Make me know your ways, O Lord. Lead me in your truth. So the prayer is for God's truth as it is revealed in his word. To be known on earth. So for knowledge of the Bible to flourish and to spread. And then secondly, he says, God's saving power. Old Testament saints might have thought first here about God saving them from external enemies. But as people who are living on this side of the cross, we comprehend our greatest need is to be saved from the wrath of God. The greatest news a captive criminal can get is that pardon is available, right? The greatest news one lost at sea can get is that a rescue is coming. The greatest news a starving man can get is that there's food to be found. Well, God's saving power is available through Jesus Christ. Let people know that. These two short verses capture a simple truth. God wants to bless his people so they will be a blessing to others. The psalmist understands that, so he prays that. And I hope you can see how verse 1 doesn't work without verse 2. Bless me. Be gracious to me. Make your face to shine upon me so that I can be safe and comfortable and healthy and hopefully upper middle class. That doesn't work, does it? We might think about the difference between a river and a reservoir. A reservoir is basically a holding tank. It stores up for potential future use. But what makes a river a river is that it flows. And that's the idea here. I mean, if you stop and catalog the way that God has blessed you, materially, physically, in terms of your health, relationally, spiritually, in terms of your salvation in Christ and the resources of this church, You're supposed to have this idea that all of those things are supposed to be flowing out to others. Not hypothetically, not rhetorically, not potentially, but really and actually. 
You and I are supposed to be rivers of blessing, not reservoirs. I like the way Spurgeon says it. There is no vibrant Christian who is not ministering to others. If you are languishing in your spiritual faith, it may be in part because there is no outward ministry. Just as a pond can become a tepid swamp if it has no outflow, so Christianity becomes lifeless if there is no giving of ourselves in ministry to others. I wonder if you have that mindset this morning, this idea of being a river of blessing. So young people, students, do you look around at your fellow classmates and want them to know God's way and his saving power? Are you praying for the conversion of the people on your swim team or your soccer team? When all of us think about our financial resources, do do we think primarily about accumulation or about giving? Saving is certainly a biblical principle, but not hoarding. All of us should consider whether we're doing as much as we can to take the blessing of material prosperity and invest in God's way and his saving power being spread through local outreach here in Virginia, as well as in cross-cultural missions. I think we need to take stock as well about how we're using our time and our giftings to further the ministry of our local church. One of the clearest correlations I see as a pastor uh, is between those serving in the church and those growing as a Christian. Conversely, those who are only marginally invested in the church are more often telling me that they feel like they're languishing in their spiritual growth. The the problem with spiritual reservoirs, as Spurgeon says, is they often become more like a swamp. We need to get that spiritual water flowing again in ministry to others. And here I feel like is the coronavirus dilemma, right? Uh, Setting aside for a moment that we've been told it might be better for people if you stay away from them, An unchristian idea, if I've ever heard one. The predominant idea out there in the culture is stay safe. That's the thing that we hear over and over again. Well, you can't make stay safe your motto and not become a swamp. You just can't. The best thing for us is not to stay safe. It's to get moving, to get flowing. So God always blesses his people to be a blessing. Uh, And the first way that that blessing starts to flow is in prayer. So let's move to point two, a prayer for missions. Let all the peoples praise you. That's the repeated prayer there, right? You can see it in verse three and verse five. They're exactly the same. Let the peoples praise you, God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let Let the peoples praise you again, verse five. Let all the peoples praise you. And then in verse seven, you can see he comes back to the idea at the end. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. I want you to notice just how many times he repeats the word peoples or nations. It's seven times in just three verses there. Three, four, and five. It's repeated so much. It's as if the psalmist doesn't want there to be any doubt about the scope of his prayer. Now, why would there be any doubt? Well, God's people have a history of forgetting that they're supposed to be a blessing to the nations. The nations that are mentioned here were more often an object of hatred and distrust than mercy in Israel's history. 
That's the powerful message of the book of Jonah, right? The wayward prophet is actually angry that God would allow himself to be merciful and gracious to the people of Nineveh. Now, scholars debate whether there is a a mission in the Old Testament the way there is in the New Testament. There, There certainly is no go and make disciples of all nations stated quite that way in the Old Testament, but you can't say that Israel didn't know that they were supposed to be attracting people, that their ministry was an attractional one. People were supposed to see God's work in the people of God and and be drawn to come to know him. We might think about Rahab as the kind of person that's being prayed for here. After all, God's promise to Abraham was that in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The prophets would come along and, and bring the repeated refrain that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah 11.9 So though Israel may have often forgotten, this was always God's intention. And we who have the whole Bible know our commission clearly. We are to go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus promised to be with us is tied to that very task. And we know that the task will be finished, right? Because at the end of the Bible, in Revelation 7, we get this vision of a multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, singing what? I say that in Chinese because more people are going to be saying it in Chinese than English, I think. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. So the answer to the prayer is sure, but it's to be our prayer nonetheless. To say something is to be our prayer is to say that something is supposed to be dear to our hearts. Now, how does that happen? How do we have a heart for the nations, for people that we've never met? He's praying for them. They're on his heart. Well, how do we get our hearts to beat with the rhythm of the nations? I don't assume, for example, that any of you woke up this morning thinking about the Malay people group. Uh, In Southeast Asia, especially in India and Burma, it's one of the largest and most unreached people groups on the planet. Uh, If in any of the countries that it's in, uh, if you you make it your purpose to reach out to the Malay people, you'll you'll be arrested. Uh, The reason I know and think about the Malay is because my friend Michael Crane uh, has a heart for them. He often talks about them. I feed off of his vision. He leads me to pray for them. And I think that's a good place to start. For you and I to make places that Arlington Baptist Church supports around the world be places that you cultivate a heart and a vision for and an interest in. I think we can take our cues from the places that uh, our pastors pray for in their public prayers. So when when Mike prays for different countries on Sunday morning, you, you could take that country... And pray for it during the week, during your times of private devotion or perhaps your your family devotions. I think we should invest in books like Operation World that catalogs different countries and prayer requests. Uh, I like a book called Window on the World because it has great pictures. Uh, You could use it in times of family devotion. You could teach your kids about the world by teaching them to pray for the world. 
Maybe you have a small group Bible study that you could include a time of praying for different countries around the world. However we do it, you and I are supposed to cultivate a heart for the nations by praying for the nations. And I think that this is one of the best ways for us to combat the anxiety that that I feel in the U.S. right now. I mean, there are so many heavy things going on that we're concerned about, the, the virus, the unrest, racial inequality, that's real, uncertainty of what to do about it, a political process that often seems far removed from the needs of the common citizen. I think things are going to move towards a fever pitch as we head towards November 3rd. And it can be easy for you and I just to have a sense of heaviness of what's going on in our country. I think it's really important for us to remember that God is doing something much bigger than the United States of America. When we begin praying for the nations, we're reminded that nothing is as important as the earth being filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So I think the application for us here is to change our anxiety by changing our prayer life. We have a perspective on missions. We have a prayer for missions. Let's consider thirdly, a power for missions. A power for missions, knowing God. So far, we've essentially talked about a stewardship of God's blessing and a call to prayer. And I think if we left it there, we've basically got more things to do on our to-do list. I think we risk walking out of church and just having a, a heavier sense of burden. But come back to the psalm. This doesn't read like a duty, does it? The psalm literally sings. Why is that? Well, if we look closely, I think there's an internal engine here, kind of an internal combustion engine for us, a power that drives the ministry impulse and the missionary zeal that God wants for each of us. Look again there at verse 4. Remember, this is, the, this is the center of the psalm here. It's sandwiched between the repeated refrain of verse 3 and verse 5. So this is the beating heart of the psalm. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Gladness and joy for the nations has a source, a source in knowing God. Can you see that? The psalmist names two things about God here. First, he judges with equity, meaning God is evaluating the behavior of the nations. He is even now holding them accountable. He is the judge of all the world, and he will do what is right. So the U.S. leaders are being held accountable for God, for how they behave in relationships with those inside and outside the nation. The Chinese leaders are being held accountable for the ongoing crackdown on religious freedom. Leaders in the Middle East are being held accountable for not allowing the preaching of the gospel and the worship of people according to freedom of conscience. Though justice is delayed in many cases, it will nonetheless come. Because God is the true king, he will judge with equity. This is a precious truth for those under persecution. There's a second thing that he points to about God here. He he guides the nations of the earth. That is to say, as Proverbs 21.1 does, that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So as disjointed and as depressing as politics may seem globally and locally, the Christian can have confidence that it's all being guided 
by God's hand to a conclusion that he has chosen. Those things are true around the world, they're true locally, they're true in our individual lives. Though injustice seems to prevail for a time, God will do what is right in the end. Though our lives seem out of control, they're not. We can trust him to guide us through the wilderness of this world. So I think it's this knowledge of God, this knowing him, that seems to empower the psalmist here. Look there in verse 6. He says, God, our God, will bless us. For the believer in Jesus Christ, he's not just God. He's our God. It's personal to us. He's adopted us into his family through faith in Jesus Christ. So we can say, he is our God. Do you know him this morning? Is he your God? If not, you need only turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. That he was the perfect provision of God to die on a cross for your sin and then to be raised again from the dead, assuring that anyone who trusts in him will likewise rise from the dead one day. If you don't believe that this morning, I pray that you will. I'd love to talk to you after the service more about that. But brothers and sisters, we who can say our God We have this internal combustion engine of ministry and missionary zeal. The psalmist says, let the nations be glad and sing for joy because he's experienced that joy himself. And that's the result of knowing God. It's singing for joy in God. Joyful singing. I remember the first time I came to a Christian gathering as a 19-year-old in college. What immediately floored me was the singing. What are these people singing about? I have atheists that attend our services regularly. Uh, They make clear to me it's not because of my preaching. They tell me they don't believe that. Uh, But they really like the singing. They're somehow irresistibly drawn to it. I had a Chinese policeman, uh, incidentally, tell me that he likes Baptists. I asked him why. He said, because you don't sing as loud as Pentecostals. And I realized then that it wasn't a compliment. I went back to my church and said, we've got to sing louder. We've got to change the Baptist rep on this. Joy is the key to the outflow of ministry we want to see in our lives. Listen to the way C.S. Lewis said. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy. Because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It's frustrating to have discovered some new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly to the turn of a road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than a tin can in the ditch. Or to hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. Well, what does all this mean? We've said that you aren't going to be a vibrant Christian if you don't have an outflow of ministry. And we've said that your outflow of ministry should be accompanied by a heart and prayer for the nations. But now we finish by seeing that none of that is going to happen if you don't have this internal engine of seeking to know God more and find your joy in Him. So what do we do to increase that? Well, first, I hope you realize that giving yourself to the life of your local church is meant to do that. We are here to stir up each other's love for him and affection for him. 
So join this church if you haven't. I would love to do that. But then we can ask each other as we relate, as we get to know each other better, what is the Lord teaching you? We can do that on a walk together or a meal together or coffee together. I hope that you plan to get together with each other this week. But much of this will need to come from us deciding to make Jesus number one in our lives. Other people can't do this for us. You know what I mean by that? When you wake up in the morning, it isn't so much that you need to continue that Bible reading plan. What you need is to rekindle your affections for the Lord. To be reminded of His great and precious promises. To speak with Him about your day and ask Him to to help you to walk through your day in a way that is good and faithful and to remember Him throughout the day. You need to ask Him to help you find your joy in Him. Let knowing God, let joy in God fuel your desire to be used in the lives of others and your desire to pray for the nations. God always blesses His people so that they'll be a blessing to others, to the ends of the earth. There's one more thing before we conclude. The Psalms are a prayer book for the church. We go there to learn how to pray and what to pray. But before it was our prayer book, it was Jesus' prayer book. Most of the Psalms were written by David the king. Some were written by priests. They prayed these prayers over the people of God. Well, Jesus is David's greater son and the great high priest over God's people. Did Jesus pray this prayer over us? I think he did. He certainly more than anyone else knew the blessing and the shining face of his father. All that he did in coming and living the perfect life, dying a substitutionary death, was done to ransom people for God from the nations, from all the nations. He did it so that the nations would be glad and sing for joy. He did it so that we who were far off could be brought near and say, God, even our God, will bless us. He did it so that the ends of the earth would fear and know God. And what should make us love Him all the more is that He embraced blessing from God that included a cross. Even the cross was embraced by Jesus so that the nations could be glad and sing for joy. That is why the writer of the Hebrews says that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. For you and I, that means that we don't need the vanity of chasing the American dream or the empty promises of the prosperity gospel. We don't need to stay safe or live the balance of 2020 merely trying to avoid getting COVID-19. We get the greater blessing of following our Savior in laying down our lives for the good of those around us. We can pour out our lives for the good of the nations. We can give what we cannot keep to gain what we can never lose. We can abandon small dreams and set our mind to preaching the gospel. We can remember, as David Livingston said it, that God only had one son, and he was a missionary. God always blesses his people to be a blessing in Northern Virginia and around the world. Let's pray. Our Father, we do ask this morning that you would bless us. 
And we thank you for the great and precious promises that come to us of blessing through Jesus. We also pray, Lord, that you would help us to realize and remember that you want us to enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations. And you want us to lay down our lives in this life. Help us to do that. I pray for any here this morning that don't know you, that they would repent of their sins and trust in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.